Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Chasing Elephants podcast. My name is Brent Crow, and as always, I'm joined by Jeff Wallace. If life is a journey, we want to help you journey well. If life is a story, we want to help you tell a good one. Hey, guys. How are we doing? There you go. Hey. Uh, my name is Brent, and uh, I have the privilege. Hey, what's up? How you doing? It's good to see you at the reunion. Um, and, and I have the privilege of serving on the team here at SLU. And uh, can I just say, I know that we pushed through. I know we, we met last year. But when I was standing over here with Jeff Wallace and lifting our hands and singing, and it, we met last year, we're having a meeting this year, okay? And, and, and so it is, it feels good uh, to, be, to be back. I don't even want to say the word pandemic because I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of hearing about it. I don't want to know about it. I, somebody sneezed and the whole world got in trouble. I, I don't know. But, man, it feels good to be back in the room with practitioners who care deeply about student ministry. Um, I remember several years ago listening to one of our communicators say, uh, the thing about youth ministry is you get to help someone write one verse of their song, but you'll never hear the entire song sung, most likely. And you got to be comfortable with that. And so what we're trying to do this year, and we've done a lot of research, as Jeff has already mentioned, we did a lot of kind of trying to figure out and, 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 and take the pulse of what's going on, is we're trying not to focus on, and we will in some of the breakouts, but we're trying not to focus predominantly on um, how can you do youth ministry better? But rather this year, we're trying to focus on how you can be healthy. How can we be healthy? We're trying to focus on what's possible for us so that we can be the best possible version of ourselves for our students. As we researched the landscape of what was going on and listening to so many of the youth ministers and pastors and youth workers and educators that we have the privilege to interact with, there seemed to be this overwhelming need to focus on getting healthy and asking, what's a paradigm for me moving forward, a paradigm that's based on, on health? Now, uh, th listen to me. Every, we, we were going into this thing. I call it this thing now. I don't even want to use the word, the, the pandemic word. But we were going into this thing, and I was asked to write a, a book about what it would look like to come out of this thing and how do we reimagine a paradigm and, and, and moving forward. And um, I don't know if you've ever written a book before, but here's the deal. Uh, you don't get as much say as you think that you're going to get. Um, uh, it, everybody thinks, oh, your name's on the cover. You came up with all of that. You come up with a lot of stuff, and then people tell you what is now possible and not possible. And I, uh, I wrote this book, but the, the, the I had a different title in mind, and my publisher wanted me to, uh, the title of the book to be 10 Steps to Your Best Life. I hate that title. Like, whenever I hear the phrase best life, like, that, that's not consistent with 20 years of preaching and teaching and what it looks like. You know, there's a part of me that hears the phrase best life, and I want to punch myself in the face. And, and of course, the argument was, well, that, that phrase needs to be redefined. What does it look like to be the best version of ourselves moving forward out of this season, this historic season that we have been in? 
And, and so, so what we're going to do in our plenary sessions, and we're going to do this to some extent in our breakouts, is we're going to begin to unpack a paradigm of what is possible for, for healthy, healthy living so that we can be the best version of ourselves. And we started, of course, with our first session, and now I, I'm, I'm, and I didn't choose this topic. I mean, I wrote the book, but some, uh, Jeff assigned this topic to me. Uh, and it is the word contentment. This is not a good, I don't know about you, but it's not a good subject for me to try to wrestle through. I am not good at being content. There is a, a desire for more. I'm a driver, always have been. It's gotten me in some trouble over the years, uh, and it's helped us accomplish some things over the years. But I, I, I like to push, I like to drive, I like to accomplish I want to I want to I want to find the victory and then I want to surpass it. My fr- there you go. But I walk in this room and the first thing that I thought of cuz I struggle with contentment is even though there are 28 denominations and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of youth workers gathered together, we got to fill these empty seats. My first thought I had somebody tell me one time, because I wrestle so much with discontentment, I had a, a, an older gentleman say to me, you need to learn to rest in the victories. And he was half right. I thought that if I could figure out how to win, if I could figure out how to succeed, if I could figure out what the victory was, then I could rest in it. The problem with that is if if you are constantly driving, if you are constantly trying to push the envelope, if you're constantly, if you're task-oriented, if you're, if you're like, I, I don't walk slowly through a room. I walk quickly and try to get a lot done, which is not the best way to walk through a room. But if you're that kind of person, if you want to find that place where you rest in your victories, the problem with that is that you're resting in what you could accomplish, which is only going to lead to more discontentment. And there's a secret to understanding what it means to be content. And we're going we're gonna to look at that today. Of course, there's an incredible text in Philippians chapter 4, which we're going to read together in just a moment. I, I, uh, my wife recognizes this in, in me. My wife and I have been blessed with an amazing, my wife is much more, she's, she's smarter than I am. She's a better leader than I am. And I'm not just saying that. People do that to just brag on their wives. No, no, she really is. And she recognized that, that there needed to be a paradigm shift in our own lives. So she said, hey, I'm going to start looking for us to live somewhere different. We lived right here in Orlando, off one of the busiest streets in Orlando, seven minutes from my office, and, and just constantly go, 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 go. And, and, and I was like, okay, sure. You know, if you want to look at living somewhere else, I'm open to whatever you want to do. And she ends up, uh, she says, okay, I found it. I just need you to look at it before we buy it which is how things go in my house, right? Um, and, and so we get in the car and we start driving and the 15 minutes go by and 30 minutes go by and 45 minutes go by and an hour goes by. We're not in Orlando, obviously, anymore. And we're, there's just cows and, and country things everywhere. And, and like we passed a tractor supply and, and a rebel flag. I mean, you know, and so, I mean, it's, we're out there. This is not my world. And please don't post about that. God knows. <laughs> so we go out and she buys uh, a fixer-upper farmhouse. Ten acres in the middle of nowhere. 
She goes, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a little farm. We're not farm people. <laughs> we're Uber Eats people. And I'm like, but I got whatever you want. You think this is what we need to do? And I was for it. And I, you know, I like the quiet and the nature and the, and then, and, and you know, and, and I, you know, and I killed a four foot long uh, water moccasin on our first day. I didn't know it was a water moccasin. I tried to shoo it away and it kept coming back. <laughs> and so I got a, a shovel and I went, well, he's trying to bite me. So I chomp its head off. And then one of our country neighbors comes by, an amazing guy, by the way, he's turned out to be an incredible neighbor. And. He, he goes, well, if the gate's open, you're supposed to just stop on by. That's courtesy out here. And I went, oh, I'm definitely closing the gate from now on. And, um, <laughs> and so he comes on to say, hey, and welcome to the road. Um, and, <laughs> and I say, hey, can I ask you a question? Is that a poisonous snake? And he's like, yeah, that's a copper. That's a, a water moccasin, a cotton mouth, as they call it. You know, it's a cotton mouth because when he opens his mouth, it's white on the inside. And I, he said, how'd you kill it if you don't mind me asking? I said, well, you know, I just, you know, I, I, he was coming at me and, and, and I, I put my, I had my slip-on Vans on. And so I said, I, I just did this. So he'd get a little closer and then I chopped his head off. He goes, hmm, you might want to invest in a gun. <laughs> I'm like, sir. <laughs> Does this not sound like I live in Orlando now? Sir, we're not gun people. <laughs> to which he replies, well, if out here, if you're not gun people, you're hospital people. And, uh, and so <laughs> so I bought a gun. I, I bought a gun. Yeah. I killed one the other night from a distance. I don't get close anymore. I don't even ask the question, is it poisonous? Is it not? It's here. It's gone. And, um, <laughs> my wife, she started, now we're farming and there's cows involved, donkeys, chickens, ducks. So she's, she's got this idea that we're going to have contentment and we're going to have this, you know, farm and we're going to be nature people. And, and then she got the pregnant cows. Now, if you live out in the country, you don't have any cell service. You have to have internet run to your house so you can get the cell service to work. That's how that works, I guess. That's what they told me. So the internet goes down, and she is, all of our children are at school. She's at school, and we have a cow that goes into labor. And they normally handle things by themselves. They have for thousands of years. <laughs> but on this particular day, Winnie the Moo... Couldn't get her baby out. And I walk outside and this thing's in pain and the, 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 thing, the baby, and I don't know anything. Nobody's there. It's just me. And so I, 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 I and, and the reason I told you the internet was out is I couldn't call her to ask her what to do. And I couldn't get online to look up a YouTube tutorial on how to get the calf out. So I, I just, I went out there, she's laying down, it's not working out for her, and I'm, I, just, <laughs> I just thought, we're going to get to know each other now. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's no kids in the room, so I can say this. There's, there's only two places the baby was going to come out of, and I'm pretty sure it's this one down here. <laughs> and so here we go. We got the baby out, miraculous. I can't believe it lived. I mean, I can't believe I lived. I mean, I, I can't believe it. 
And the baby calf comes out, so gross. It was the nastiest thing. <laughs> My wife comes home, I'm covered in nasty. And I got this now cute little calf running around the pasture. And she's like, good job. So proud. You get to name it. You, you delivered it. You get to name it. And I went, good. So we have a baby calf that's three weeks old at our farm that's named Never Again. And um, <laughs> But we did all this because we were chasing after some, we wanted to be content. We wanted to find a new paradigm for living. And what I've learned through this whole process is this. Watch this. Because we did this going into the pandemic. What I've learned through all this is that that you don't have to chase after something out there to find contentment. And Paul's going to actually tell us the secret of it with the few moments that we have together. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, we're going to read a couple verses and then we're going to read probably the most uh, misinterpreted applied verse in the entire Bible. Yeah, that's right. So he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And, and, and I don't say this out of need. In other words, he's going, I don't want you to feel bad because you weren't in a place to help me at that time because the Philippians had helped him at other times. In fact, the book of Philippians is one big thank you letter if we were to be honest about it. And so he goes, I don't don't say this out of need, for I I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Now that is a fascinating statement for the life of the Apostle Paul. And I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. And in all circumstances, he, he uses this phrase almost like, like, it's a secret, but it's kind of, it's an open secret. Like, this is not hard to figure out, guys, is what he's saying to the Philippians. I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. Here it is. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, when Paul said, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me, he's going, it's a secret. It's almost a little bit of a play on words because it's really not that big of a secret. He's going, I've learned that Jesus is sufficient when I don't have anything. And Jesus is sufficient when I have a lot. And the secret is to preach that message, if you will. There's not a bunch of points here. But the the secret, what Paul, I think, is telling us is that I've learned this. In other words, I'm preaching. This is an ongoing learning. I am preaching this message to myself every day. Every day, the message that I tell myself is Jesus is enough for whatever happens this day. And so if you're taking notes, I hope you are, because I think that's that's a good thing. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts by way of studying this word contentment and, and, and maybe help, this will help you as you've tried to discover this in your own life and maybe you'll do a little bit better than I have. I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out and I got a long way to go. But number one, if you're, if you're going to be content, I want us to see, be a learner who is on a journey. That's what we see first. I've learned this, Paul says. I've learned the secret. Be a learner who is on a journey. 
Paul writes this from a jail, doesn't he? He writes this on a pilgrimage. He writes this on one of his missionary journeys. Paul is constantly on the go. The paradigm of Paul the disciple is someone who was on a journey. And so he he goes... Take the posture of being a learner. You can, if I learned it, you can learn it. Take the posture, and God knows if Paul could learn it, we could learn it. Not because he, he was one of the greatest, smartest individuals in the history of mankind, but he was also very stubborn and prideful and imprisoned in his thought life by the law. So if he could be delivered from that so that he could learn something new, there's no excuses that we have. Because in Acts 9, he's breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord because he hasn't learned this. So he has learned something, and it was very difficult for a man of his stature and position and education to learn something new. But he's learned something, and he learned it as someone who was on a journey. I hope you're taking notes, and, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but would you just get it down and wrestle with it? Pilgrimage is the best paradigm for disciple making. Now that doesn't sound revolutionary at first glance. Doesn't sound that odd. Doesn't sound pilgrimage is the best paradigm for disciple making. Like, but, but but it's very that's very different than a lot of times how we make disciples. It's very different than how how somebody built me up as a disciple because because I I thought being a disciple for so long meant that I've got to learn a bunch of stuff, memorize a bunch of stuff, and do a bunch of stuff. And, and, and learning and doing is not the scope and sequence, it's not this linear scope and sequence that produces the healthiest of disciples. It's, it's, it's that idea that the psalmist wrote about happy are the people whose strength is in you and whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Paul was a man that knew he had been set apart to the journey. I got to be honest with you, I I have even been guilty of preaching this. Well, uh, he was Saul before he got saved, and he was Paul after he got saved. That represented his new name. No, it didn't. It preaches well, but it's not factually accurate. And it showed me how little I had actually read the Bible, because he was called Saul four times after he got saved. The last time he's called Saul, though, And from thenceforth called Paul, he's setting out on his first missionary journey. See, Paul was just simply his Greek name. And he was going to spend the rest of his life out there on mission. He was going to spend the rest of his life out there on this journey, on this pilgrimage that would begin, yes, when, when, when the Lord shined a light from heaven and knocked him off his animal and he, he heard this voice. Yes, it's going to begin there, but the journey will end when he steps foot in the heaven country. Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, let me walk along the seashore of the disciples' lives and go, hey, let's go, let's go learn some stuff together. Come and follow me, and you're going to learn a lot. You're going to store up all of your, your knowledge. And, and No, no, no. He said, let's, let's go somewhere. Let's, and, and they would spend the next three years on this epic journey that would change the world. You are, at the end of the day, a pilgrim making your way home to the heaven country. So the question is, how do we journey well? That should be the question that just drives our disciple-making strategies. If you, if you have a faulty philosophy of life, if, if it's flawed, 
then you're going to have a flawed paradigm of living. That's why we start with this idea of be a learner who's on a journey. Three characteristics, very quick, write these down. Three characteristics very quickly of somebody who's a learner, a learner who is on a journey. Number one, they understand they're a heavenly citizen. We've already said that. Number two, they understand heavenly treasure. They're investing in eternity with their lives. And then number three, they have a heavenly mindset. Paul would write about this in Colossians chapter three when he would talk about set your mind on things above. Like your feet are planted here on planet earth, but have a heavenly mindset. So, so they're a heavenly citizen, heavenly treasure, heavenly mindset. Those are the three predominant characteristics of, of what it looks like to be a pilgrim making their way home uh, to the heaven country. Number two, what we learn about contentment is to develop um, a healthy growing understanding of God. Develop a healthy, growing understanding of God. He goes, I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all three things. This is, we've already discovered Paul's declaration that Christ is sufficient. Let me make a Captain Obvious statement for just a moment. Can I just Captain Obvious this thing for a second? The healthier my view of God is, the more satisfied I am with Jesus in all my circumstances. The reason some of us have struggled so poorly, I'm just talking to you. I'm not, because I've struggled, right? I've discovered things about myself and my own view of God the last two years. But the reason some of us have struggled to the degree that we have is because we never had a healthy, growing view of God. He was just simply somebody that gave us a ticket to heaven, and we're going to go play games with students and hopefully they'll get a ticket to heaven and there is so much more to this thing. Because my view of God determines everything about me. There is nothing in your life, there is nothing in my life that I can divorce from my view of God. And I don't even know who said that first. I know there's been so many great authors and writers. Down, I, Dr. Bill Bright, I heard him say that years ago before he passed away. In fact, it was the last thing he ever said to me when I was sitting in his condominium 15 minutes from here. Make sure you have a healthy view of God because that determines everything about you, Brent. And so I just, if you're going to be content, you can't have a stagnant view of God. If, if, if you're on a pilgrimage, you're learning more through experiencing God more on a daily basis. In other words, I know God better. I have a healthier view of God today than I did yesterday. So if your view of God hasn't changed in a year, and I'm not talking about your view of the foundational doctrines of our faith. If those are changing, we need to have a different conversation. I'm talking about the idea that, that God is bigger, that he is sufficient, and I'm discovering his sufficiency with each passing circumstances, and the worse the circumstance, the greater his sufficiency. If I'm not growing in my view of God in that sense, it's going to lead to a flawed paradigm of living. And so make sure that you're developing in your own life a healthy and a growing uh, view of God. I would say number three, um, and this is so, I know it's so obvious, but sometimes I think we just need to remind ourselves of these simple truths, but enjoy being satisfied with Jesus in all circumstances. Enjoy being satisfied with Jesus in, in all circumstances. The, uh, the, the, the uh, Puritans wrote more about contentment than probably any other people group in history. 
And they, and they didn't get everything right on different subjects, but, but the, the, one of their great authors, a guy by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs, and, and, but he, he wrote an entire book on the, entitled The Jewel of Christian Contentment. And, and, and he, 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 or the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Here's how he defines it. Here's how the Puritans defined it. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So there's got to be something about my life that can delight in God and delight in God's presence in every circumstance. That's, that's, that was the secret Paul was getting at. I've learned how, Paul's going, I've learned how to worship in the storm. I've learned how to worship when the bottom falls out. I've learned to worship when I'm chained to a wall. I've learned to worship when I was beaten to death. In fact, I've learned to experience Christ's efficiency so much that I got beaten to death. Probably, we don't know, it looks like in Scripture that when he went to Lystra, they took him outside the city and they killed him. Maybe God brought him back to life, I don't know. But what does Paul do? Hey, uh, let's go to the next city. No, let's make another pass by Lystra. That's how much Paul had learned. He's going, if it gets worse next time around, and by the way, it couldn't get much worse than dying. But if it gets worse next time around, all that means is we get to experience Christ's efficiency all the more. I'm not saying that you run to trouble. But I am suggesting that we need to turn in our white flag of surrender and stop running from every circumstance that is uncomfortable. Now watch this. If you learn the secret, if you learn it, contentment is not one of those things that is discovered and then stays stagnant. It grows with time. I want to tell us, like some of you in the room that are a little younger, and I would love to put myself in that category, and so I will. There's a contentment that somebody with a few more scars than us, who's lived a little bit longer, who has experienced Christ's efficiency in the good days and the bad days with one in, in need, that they, they know a level of a contentment that you and I don't know yet. Our contentment, our delight in God in all circumstances grows with time. Some of you know, because you followed a little bit of our story, that this, the, we, we decided to pull the pin on the grenade and do life completely different going into the pandemic. We moved out to the country and did the cow thing. And then uh, uh, my, uh, I remember one day, um, it, was, it was May, I remember that. It was May of 2020, and an email comes in to, uh, from a, a friend of ours who's a lawyer in child advocacy. And it was a, she sent it to my wife. She didn't send it to me. If she was sent it to me, I wouldn't have looked at it for three months and the story would have never happened. But she sent it to my wife. And, and it was, she's going, hey, I've got these, this sibling group, these three kids. And I know that you guys are in touch with a lot of families. Could you help me get the word out? Because it's really hard to place sibling groups, especially when there's older siblings in that group. It's darn near impossible, actually. Now, if you were to rewind the tape, we tried to adopt in 2013 and stayed in the system for almost four years. Went through social, no, not throwing shade on social workers. Social workers, it just didn't work out. We thought maybe we missed it. Okay, maybe the Lord doesn't want us to do this. Maybe we're supposed to advocate. Maybe we're supposed to raise money. Maybe, I don't know. 
I mean, my parents ended up moving in with me. Maybe that's what I was getting prepared for. I don't know. Right? I mean, my, my dad's disabled, and mom and dad moved in, and we went, oh, well, maybe that's what we were doing. We were just getting ready for this. And then this email comes in. I'm outside on our, our little property, and I'm, I don't even know what I was doing, but I remember my, my wife walking out, and I'll never forget the, the expression on her face and the pace at which she was walking. Now, she's a short little Italian thing, right? She is, and, and, and she is, I mean, she's constantly on, on a mission. Some, some days that mission's this, some days it's this. She's always getting something done. And so she's a, let's go get it. And so I remember her walking out, and she, the way she was walking towards me was not like, oh, let's go hold hands and watch the sunset. It was, I, we need to talk. And she walks right up to me, and she holds the phone up into my face, and she said, take this, read this, I got an idea. Henceforth, in our family, the phrase, I got an idea, means something very different than it used to. (laughs) And so I read it, and I, I read about these three kids, and it doesn't give us any information other than there's three kids, and a little bit about what had happened and why. They needed a home, and, and that's it. And so I smiled, and I was like, what's your idea? She goes, they're ours. They're ours. And I went, we don't even know their names. We don't even know where they're from. We know they're from, the, the, I mean, this state. We don't know their ages. And then she said these words. I want you to come pray with me. We're going to go walk over here and pray. So I walked out into the middle of the woods. I'm hesitant. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, she's, all, I mean, she's already got us in the country, building a farm, and there's cows. Like, she's just, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's go do this. And so we walk out where, where nobody, because we have three homemade kids who are back in the house. <laughs> For those of you that laughed a little later, And so we go out in the woods where nobody can see us, and she just gets on her knees. She just starts praying, and then she stops, and she looks up, and she says, come pray with me. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm good over, over here. I mean, I got better reception, you know? I mean, it's... <laughs> she goes, I need you to pray with me. I don't know what to tell you other than that phrase that John Wesley used came to my mind that night. We got on our knees and our hearts were strangely warmed. Didn't know anything, just knew this is what we're gonna do. Walked, walked back into the house and we called the lawyer and she cried, we cried. And, and what we could not accomplish in five years, four years, excuse me, um, God accomplished in five weeks. And I, and I mean, if you know anything about the system, you know that's, somebody broke a rule. <laughs> there were a lot of rules, actually, that got broken. In fact, there was, there was, there was this system and that system and, and all of these, right? And, 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 and like, but it was a group of people up in this city who wanted to come around and make sure these, and, and some of them were Democrats, and some of them were Republicans, and some of them were Christians, and some of them were not, and some of them were gay, and some of them were straight, and, and I, hey, listen, 
pass judgment if you will, but a group of people came together. And all I know is that when the Democrats and the Republicans are working together to see something happen for the glory of God, what in the world are these people? They all gathered at the airport when I went to pick the kids up. And I looked back over my shoulder at this group of people that would never come together. And off we go. Now I got six kids. And we go home and we start putting these kids together and doing all this. And you got to integrate. You got to integrate. And, and so we wanted them to integrate into a life. And so we were like, you got to, let's get out of the house, do something sport wise. And so we, we, I have two. Uh, 13 year old daughters at the time, two 12 year old daughters. Oh my gosh. Like two 12 year old girls in a house is, uh, I don't know, man, it's something. Um, <laughs> and so we were like, okay, we want you to both, so one of them is our homemade kid, one of them is adopted kid. We want you to both go try out for basketball. Mercy and Zariah. And so they go and they try out, and we're so happy that Zariah's willing to try out. She's trying to weave, get to find stuff she's interested in, help her get plugged in. But then we had this thought during tryouts. What if, some of you already know what I'm saying. What if, some, what if she didn't make it? What if one of them makes it and the other doesn't? And our worst fear came true. Like, Mercy made the team, and Zariah didn't. So my wife gets on the phone with a coach. Got to find a solution. <laughs> and she goes, I know she can't make the team. I get it. But could she be an equipment manager? She goes, I don't know if there's ever been an equipment manager in middle school girls basketball, but sure, yeah. And so she could practice with the team and she could help, you know, with the equipment and different things. And she was, she, that, that was good for her. And, and, and middle school girls basketball is the weirdest sport I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> They're not good. <laughs> like at all. Like it's a basketball game and at halftime it can be nine to seven. <laughs> because if any of them are good, the junior varsity coach goes, okay, come play with us. So middle school girls basketball is, they're just not any good. So um, it's not like Mercy's good. They're all bad. <laughs> so a couple weeks into the season, the coach goes, okay, we're going to do this drill. Uh, Mercy, you line up there. And then she named another uh, player who was on the better end of, of the, the quality. And she goes, you line up there. I said, our rest of the team line up behind one of these two girls and we're going to do a drill. And everybody knew that Mercy was the, the weaker of the two players, so the whole team went and lined up. And Mercy's standing there by herself. Zariah's over here doing something on the, on what she was supposed to do. And, and she looks up and she sees all of this. She drops everything she's doing. She stomps out onto the court so that everybody will pay attention to her. And she goes and stands behind Mercy and she says as loud as she can, I'm with her. And I need you to be reminded of something today. The secret of contentment is knowing that Jesus put on human flesh. And as Eugene Peterson would write about in John 1, moved into the neighborhood of humanity. And when no one was there for you, he walked up right next to you and said, I'm with him. 
I'm with her. That's enough. And it's not enough to hear it in a conference. Listen to me. It is not enough to hear it in a conference. You've got to preach it to yourself every day. The best preacher is not somebody who'll ever stand on a stage. You've got to preach it to yourself every day. Every time that the sun comes up and his mercies are new, you've got to go, God is for me. There may, be, there may be a lot of circumstances that are, that are unpredictable that I don't know about. There may be a lot of stuff that's coming at me, but I'm not going to wave a white flag because I've turned mine in. I'm standing next to King Jesus, and I have discovered that the secret of contentment is that in him I can do all things. In fact, the bigger, the tougher, the harder the circumstance, the more sufficiency I get to experience. Some of us need to be reminded that Jesus came down from heaven. He stepped out of the stands. And that he has, listen to me, don't, everybody in the house, look right here. And he has walked up beside you. And if anything else, I want you to hear him say this to you. I am here and I am for you. If you understand that, you can endure and experience all things. 